James chapter 1. This morning we'll read from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, to give us the full context of our, of our passage this morning. <coughs> James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So, too, the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through this book. Thank you, Father, for this particular passage this morning. As you speak to us on, on a subject that is all too familiar to everyone here, the nature of trials and how believers can respond in trials. Father, we desire to, to understand these words. Uh, we sense a need for these words. We sense its importance and its helpfulness for us in the various trials that we face in life. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would teach us, give us understanding and not only under, of its meaning, but Lord, give us understanding of its application in our lives. Grant us wisdom, Lord, that we would apply your word rightly to our lives. And Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would use it particularly to not only encourage those who are going through trials at this very moment in their life, but, Lord, you would equip us as, a, as believers, as a, a church of Christ. For when the time will come that we as a church body will face trials as a whole, trials that will shake some, that will test our faith greatly, and that may even cause some to fall away. And Lord, we pray that as a church, as a body of Christ, that we would remain, that we would learn to these instructions from James, that we would heed them, live according to them, that we would be a church that remains faithful to you, just as you have always been faithful to us. 
So, Lord, we pray and we trust that you would be glorified now through your word. Entrust this time to you. Cause your word to go forth. Thank you for your word, Lord. Sanctify us in it, this truth that we've received. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning's message, uh, I was just after studying it, I thought, oh, it should be two sermons. But I didn't want to uh, split in half lest it affects everybody else out, all our worship leaders in the coming months. So we're going to still continue to try to take, at it, take it as uh, one message this morning. By the grace of God, we'll do that. So we'll just get right into the, the introdu- sort of the context of this passage. In James chapter 1, verse 2, the scriptures tell us that, that Christians will encounter various trials, right? Uh, it tells us that don't, don't, you know, we should consider all joy when you encounter various trials. And trials definitely are, are those, are very, should be, you should see them in your life. If you, even right now where you're sitting, you can probably think of a trial that you're going through. And if you're not, if you can't think of anything, I'm sure that you've experienced a trial uh, maybe recently as well. Trials are common, as common as maybe sin. Trials are those circumstances that, that test your faith, that cause you to, to depend more on Christ. It's almost trials are, it's a test in the sense like it's a, it's a multiple, it's a not multiple, it's a true-false. Uh, it's a, will I trust Christ in this or will I not trust Christ in this? And you kind of know the right answer that we are to trust Christ in this, but it's still a question that's posed to us in whatever circumstance that we face. I know, uh, I know for myself in the, many tri- in the trials that I've encountered in life that they always, whether I consciously am aware of it or not, I've looked back and I see that there were times where I was challenged to trust Christ in the midst of trials or to not trust Christ in those, trust, in those trials. And we all experience this. Now, of course, we don't, for many of us, we, when we think of trials, we think of the big trials. We think of illness and personal conflicts, loss of loved ones, uh, struggles with wrestling with sin. But trials can be even the, the common things in, of our life, the everyday things of our life. It, it can be parenting. That can be a trial. Marriage can be a trial. Your work can be a trial. Your school can be a trial. Even your participation in the body of Christ can be a trial for some. Anything that tests your faith is a trial. And so think about it, even for you where you're sitting. What trial are you facing today? You just kind of, maybe you're facing multiple trials. You can kind of note them down in your, in your mind. And if you really can't think of any trials, then think of something that you've most recently faced. Identify and think about that trial. Because this morning's scripture passage, this whole chapter, in fact, the whole scripture reading that we've had, speaks to us when we find ourselves in the facing trials. It speaks to you and your situation and whatever trial that you just noted in your mind today. James writes for us in this book of how we ought to have a faith that works. And particularly as we look at chapter 1, a faith that works in the midst of trials. A faith that's tested and we want to respond rightly and we want to say, I want to trust Christ more. Not a, I'm going to trust Christ less or I'm going to fall away from Christ. Chapter 1, 2 through 18, we'll look at 12 through 18 uh, next time. We learn that faith perseveres in the midst of trials. And last week we looked at how, in verse 2 through 4, how faith finds joy in trials. We could really divide 2 to 18, we divide 2 to 18 into four sections. We looked at 2 to 4, and this week we're going to look at the next two parts. If I was going to summarize these two parts into one, I would summarize it as faith looks to God in the midst of trials. That's what faith really is. Faith is trusting God. But faith looks to God. A lot of times in the midst of times of faith, we tend to look at other things, right? We look at the circumstances. And say, so, oh, this is all I can see. And you don't look to God. We, we, it kind of, the circumstance of the trial becomes greater than, than anything else in our life, and we become frozen. Faith sometimes, uh, when trials also cause us to look at ourselves. But God wants us in the midst of trials to look to him, to look to God. And you're, even in the, your, most, your current trial, where are you looking as you face these trials? Do you look at your trial, your circumstances? Do you look at yourself? Oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to work on this? How, what am I going to change? What can, how can I work it out? Or will you look to God? God wants us, as people of faith, 
who believe in Christ to look to him in the midst of trials. As a simple outline today, we're going to find two ways that believers look to the Lord in the midst of trials. <coughs> so let's go right into number one, part number, uh, or the first part of two here. Number one, faith seeks wisdom from the Lord in trials. That's the title of the sermon even this morning. It's kind of the most practical thing. This is probably the most common prayer, <laughs> at least for me, I pray. I'm always praying for wisdom in my life. I'm like, oh, Lord, give me more wisdom. In our elders' meetings, we're always praying for wisdom. Uh, in our, my family, we're praying for wisdom uh, and strength. Uh, but it's like always, I need wisdom. I think maybe it's probably, for, I hope for you, it's one of the most common things that you pray for as well. Pardon <coughs> me. In verse 4, James writes about this endurance in trials that results in Christ-like maturity, where one becomes perfect and complete, uh, is so that one may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, while increasing endurance moves us towards that direction, no one ever reaches it in this life until we see Christ in heaven, until we arrive in glory. Which means then, on this side of eternity, we will always find ourselves lacking. We will always find ourselves in need in the face of trials. And what we lack most of all in trials, which we don't quite realize, is that we lack wisdom. And so James continues here in verses 5 to describe this request for wisdom that we need to have when we face trials. He says in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. James here, in that phrase, let him ask of God, is using an imperative command. English imperatives are often in the second person, right? So you ask of God. But in Greek, there are what we call third person imperatives. And here's an example. Let him ask of God. Another way that we could translate probably to convey more of the, the imperative nature of this is let him, he, he should ask of God. It's just like when someone says to you, hey, you should it's really not a suggestion. No, it comes across as a suggestion, but it's really a strong command. You should take out the trash, Henry. Uh, you should. No, uh, not that I ever hear that in our household. Uh, but you should. You know how, you know how that feels. And it comes across as a command, and that's, that's the, probably the best way to translate this word. The point is that this request, to, this instruction for us to request of wisdom isn't a suggestion. But it's a command for us. It's a, we are commanded as believers in Christ to ask of God for wisdom in the midst of trials. We need wisdom. The thing is, we often don't. Sometimes we don't because we don't realize that we have a need for wisdom. And that's what I want to look at next. The need for wisdom. Here it says, uh, if any of you lacks wisdom. It is, if you notice in the English, a, a conditional statement. And it is in that in the Greek as well. <laughs> But the Greek grammar has all sorts of different uh, levels of conditional statements. And one of this, the, level, the particular level or uh, condition here, a class of conditional statement, really implies that this condition is something that is true. If you'd actually take time to think about it, hmm, do I lack wisdom? Then in general, you will come to the conclusion that, yes, I do lack wisdom. See, in the face of trials, we all lack wisdom. We all lack wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom as one <coughs> is this Greek word Sophia. Uh, you know, you can, some people, it's, we, we understand that many, some of us are called Sophia, Sophia, or a short Sophie. Uh, we, it means wisdom. It means wisdom. Uh, a Greek word that is used of just any technical skill or knowledge. It uh, came to be uh, defined as, or one, defini one definition of this word is that endowment of heart and mind which is needed for right conduct in life. Sometimes, um, or oftentimes in Scripture, wisdom is not so much defined as it is described. That it's often described in the Scripture. Even James 3.17 later on, when James writes about wisdom, he says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. See, he simp James simply describes what wisdom looks like, how it manifests in our lives. He doesn't give a definition of it. And very few, uh, Scripture really doesn't focus too much on a definition. 
It just shows what it looks like in our lives. So oftentimes, one very practical definition of wisdom is it's just simply the skill of applying God's knowledge, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his word, the truths of his word to life, that we apply the knowledge that we gain from Scripture to our lives. That is wisdom. When we consider wisdom in relation to trials, trials have a way of presenting us with situations where we are often uncertain as to how to proceed, right? That's kind of what trials do. They make us kind of, man, I don't, I don't know what to do. What should I do? How do I respond? How can, and if the, and the, the trial is great enough, we feel that it's overwhelming. As we even ask ourselves, Lord, how can I go on? As Christians, we may have understanding of God's principles, don't we? We understand that God is good. We understand that God is loving. We understand that God is wise, God is all-powerful. We know that he teaches all about love, and love is patient, love is kind. We know that also that love disciplines. And you can list all sorts of knowledge about God and, and that we, or knowledge from his word that we gain. But wisdom is oftentimes figuring out how do we apply this plethora of God's principles to a particular situation I'm facing. How do I apply all of God's principles when my daughter is, you know, not staying still in the, you know, the changing crib of my, uh, when I change her diaper? How do I apply that? It's a trial, a minor trial, but it's a trial. It causes me to test. It caused me to, will I trust in the Lord in this? Or will I try to do it in my own strength? Will I just rely upon, oh, I'm just going to force you to stay still? That's one way. Doesn't work. So here in verse 5, James writes in such a way that causes Christians to stop and examine ourselves. To come to the conclusion for oneself, to consider the trial that you're facing. Do you know how to proceed? Do you know which of God's truths you can apply to your situation? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would always acknowledge that we lack wisdom. We don't know how. And so God tells us and gives us this great encouragement. James tells us this great instruction to seek God, ask of God. And so that's where we've come, and that James points us to that next. As we seek the, we understand who the giver of wisdom is. It says in the text, let him ask of God. That is, God is the giver of wisdom. The Old Testament makes clear that God alone is the one who is the source of wisdom. Job, in Job 28, 12, asks the question, where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? He goes on in that, uh, that chapter to answer that man doesn't have it. You can't find it among man. You can't find it among the land of the living. You can't find it in the seas. Moreover, you can't buy it with gold, nor you can buy it with silver. But later on, chapter, the same chapter, verse 23, he answers where, God, where wisdom can be found. God. God understands its ways. He knows its place. God is the one. You want to find wisdom? God knows where it's at. Go go to where God. God is the source of wisdom. Furthermore, wise King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 2, 6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Solomon's life is perhaps the best illustration of this, this obedience to or the the understanding of the need for wisdom and to seek out God who gives it. In 1 Kings chapter 3, there in that story, I think many of us are familiar with that story, the Lord appears to Solomon, and he's Solomon as king, and he tell, in a dream, and God asks him, ask what you wish me to give you. It's like a blank check from God, right? God says to you, ask whatever you wish for me to give you. You could ask for anything. From God at that moment. And Solomon could ask for anything. What would you ask of God? We know that Solomon, in his, instead of asking for a long life or riches or power over his enemies, he asked for wisdom. He asked for understanding of heart so that he may judge and rule the nation of Israel. And, of course, God granted him that request. Do you seek the giver of wisdom? In the midst of your trials. I know that if you're facing an illness, 
you tend to, you will seek a doctor. If you're being harassed by someone, you seek out a police officer. If you're having difficulties with your schoolwork, you seek out a teacher or a tutor. But first, before all you seek any of those things, we ought to seek God, ought we not? That we ought to ask God for wisdom as I start feeling ill. Ask God for wisdom as I feel afraid of that one who is harassing me. Ask God for wisdom when I, the physics homework is just way over my head, whatever that is. Those of you physics people, don't try to explain it to me. I never got it. We need to ask God for wisdom. Ask God for his, 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 to give us the wisdom that we need so we know how to respond in the circumstances. And then seek out the doctor. Then seek out the police officer. Then seek out those teacher or tutor. So how can we be sure that God will give us wisdom? The remainder of the verse gives us this promise of the provision of wisdom. That God will give us wisdom. It tells us, he describes God, James says, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. The grammar emphasizes that God here is a giving God. It describes God as a giving God. First, that is emphatic even. Throughout the Bible, if we look at the Bible, just, you had time to just read the Bible 72 hours straight and look for all the times that God gives, you would see a, a long list of God's giving. In creation, God gave us the earth, God gave us the plants, God gave us the animals, God gave us life. In salvation, God gave us his son, God gave us faith, God gave us repentance, and God gives us eternal life. And all, in, all everything in between. God gives us all this and Jesus too. And God here gives wisdom. He gives us wisdom for those who lack wisdom, those who ask of him wisdom. Two descriptions of how God gives wisdom are found in this, in this phrase. First of all, God gives wisdom impartially. He gives to all generously. That word generously could really be, also be translated as single-heartedly, wholeheartedly, simply. That is, there is a sincerely, God gives wisdom with a single-hearted, sincere intent. God gives to all without hesitation. God is not... God doesn't say, hmm, you asked for wisdom, well, oh, boy, you know, I'm not sure if I want to give it to you. That's, that's not how God gives. You ask God for wisdom, and God is, oh, that's what I want you to ask. That's what I want you to ask. Here, he gives it to us, all who ask of him generously or with a single mind intent. God is intent on giving us what we need in the midst of trials. Secondly, God gives wisdom without reproach. Have you ever asked someone for money, ask your mom and dad for money when you're a kid? You say, oh, dad, mom, I need 50 bucks so I can, you know, go and get some shoes. I know it's like 100 bucks these days, but 50 bucks back then. And so, well, your parents, they'd say, they would just say, oh, yeah, here it is. And they didn't, probably didn't say that, right? What did they say? I said, well, what would you do to your old shoes? If you would just take better care of your shoes, you wouldn't have to buy a new pair every six months. See, that's giving with reproach. That's the, it's a rebuke of sorts, you know. That's, it's okay, parents. Yeah, I know you're, you, they love us, and that's why they want us to learn from it, because money doesn't grow off trees. So we know that. But God, when he gives, he doesn't give with reproach. He gives without reproach. He doesn't say, oh, you, yeah, I'll give it to you, but you should have known better. You know, it's because of that bad choice. That's why you're in this trial. Don't you know? God doesn't say, oh, boy, you just, if you had just simply done what I told you, I would, I would have gave you, you know, I wouldn't have to give you wisdom now. See, James, ends, James emphasized that God gives wisdom impartially to all. God gives wisdom without reproach. God, God's intent, and it almost tells us that God's intent in the midst of trials is that we would ask for wisdom because he just wants to give it to us. God is a giver of good gifts to all of It's like a parent. You want your kids to learn to ask of you so that you might give to them. When you ask God for wisdom, it will be given to you. That's how James ends. It will be given to you. You can have confidence in this. This is a promise. God is intended. He desires to do so. He's not hesitant to do so. God wants us to ask for wisdom. 
Because in doing so, in the midst of trials, we manifest our faith in him. The one who knows the way through the wilderness is God. And he wants us to ask of him so that we reflect our dependence upon him. He already knows you need it, of course. He knows we need wisdom. He knows that we lack. But he wants us to learn to depend upon him, to ask of him. The act of acting is an exercise of our faith. And Jesus, Jesus, James, emphasizes this truth then in the next two verses, in verses 6 through 7. We look at the requirement of faith, the requirement of faith. Even as we learn that we need a request for faith, the request of faith of God, that yet there is a requirement that is, that is, that is demanded of us. In verse 6 to 7, James continues. He says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. That's even a command. He must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. James wants the believer to ask in faith. When we ask of God, we need to ask in faith, in trust, and not in doubt. Faith and doubting are contrasted here. Just as God gives without reservation, he desires that his people ask without reservation, ask without doubt. James likely had in mind the words of Jesus here. He'd probably heard Jesus say it on many occasions throughout their life growing up. In Matthew 21, 22 through 22, uh, we read of this. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, he had just cursed the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. See, Jesus' words here was not a blank check for believers to ask whatever they wished from God, but rather that he desires his people to ask, to, to pray to him in faith, that we would ask of him in faith, believing, believing in him. Believing is not just something we do at the moment of salvation. Believing is something we do throughout life, throughout our trials. In every trial, we ought to continue believing and trusting, casting ourselves upon the one who is in control of our lives and destiny. 1 John 5.14 adds, uh, fills us in to how to interpret these two verses. That when we ask, we ought to ask according to his will. And so that's why we don't just simply ask things, whatever we wish. Well, I want a venti americano right now. God, give me a venti americano. I believe you can do it. He could. But that's not necessarily according to God's will, is it? And then in the similar vein, then, Having a mountain move into the sea is not necessarily according to God's will. Look into the scriptures. Did you see that as being a command that that is God's will for us to pray? Rather, the, the, the emphasis of these words is that God's will is for us is not to move mountains in the sea, but rather that God's power to answer is unlimited. That it is, that his power to answer prayer can move mountains into the sea if that is his will us to pray. Jesus wants his disciples to ask in prayer, believing in him. Faith is believing that what he promises is true and that he, that he has the power and ability to fulfill them. When we pray for wisdom and faith, we're to pray believing then that he can and will give wisdom to us. When you ask for wisdom in the midst of trust, do you believe it? And I just tried practicing this just, just yesterday. And uh, I got a call early in the morning from my sister, and she was telling me, that, oh, man, we need to have a family phone call, family um, conference, because my dad was, uh, you know, my dad's living with her, and you know, it's, my dad sometimes wavers between wanting to go back to live by himself. And, you know, I mean, you guys have heard this ongoing story, and I've told, shared with some of you that it's my, the care of my father is one of the uh, heaviest burdens on my heart uh, in probably the stage of life. And so I thought, oh, man, with heaviness of heart, I thought, wow, I'm not looking forward to this uh, family conference. Um, and so I, just, I said, well, since I've been studying this passage, I thought, well, let me put it into practice, you know. And just pray for wisdom. <laughs> Lord, grant me wisdom. And just believing that God's going to grant us wisdom. 
And, you know, God, when, what's wonderful is believing in him, God goes beyond what we ask or think even. He doesn't even just give me, grant me particularly wisdom. He, he did grant me wisdom, but he even worked it beyond. I even pray for wisdom for my sister, too, for our family. And somehow my brother-in-law ended up talking to my dad and kind of worked things out so that we didn't have to have our family conference. Uh, so God is good, you know. He gives wisdom to all, my father as well. Oh, man. But pray believing. That's the point here. We need to believe. We need to prove that God gives wisdom. He does. He desires. He gives graciously, generously to all. He gives without reproach. James goes on to describe the one who doubts as like a person who's like tossed around by the seas. And we can get that. We understand this picture. If you're on a boat, you kind of just, you see, watch the waves. You're just tossed about. That's what a person who doubts is like. Now, we understand we all have doubt when we pray, right? There are sometimes we, we don't know, man, I don't even know how, especially when you're overwhelmed, you don't know how God's going to answer this. But God is able to answer. And like the father of the boy who is possessed by a demon spirit in, in Mark 9, 24, we understand we have doubt. But when we pray, we should pray like he did. I do believe. Help my unbelief, right? It's like we have that doubt. But the danger here, the warning here is that we would not continue with doubt. That we have not have continued doubt in God's character or ability to answer. But that would reflect a lack of faith. And James elaborates this in verse 8 when he describes the ruin of doubt, the danger of doubt. And that is of being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I prefer the King James translation of this verse a little bit more uh, this, in this time. There in King James it reads, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Oftentimes, James will end sections with short little statements to sort of kind of explain or illustrate the point he's making. And that's what he does here. He says, you know, the reason why you need to ask God without doubting and in faith is because, hey, if you're a double-minded man, you're unstable in all your ways. When you allow doubt in your life, when you allow doubt to run away, it leads to instability in life. I was just thinking an illustration of this. When you're doubting, when you're jumping back and forth between trusting in God and trusting in yourself or trusting in your strength or trusting in other people and then back to trusting in God today, but then you're back to trusting in yourself or not trusting in God, really, when you're trusting in yourself. It's like a husband who one day says, oh, I love my wife. I love you. Oh, the next day he says to his mistress, oh, I love you. That is an unstable man. You can't love your wife wholeheartedly, and then try to love your mistress wholeheartedly. We either love our wife and hate and have no mistress, and that's the only choice. Or we, if we love our mistress, we can't love our wives. Same with God. We love God. We're going to trust in him. We don't trust in ourselves. But if we trust in ourselves or trust in our world, trust in our strength, our riches, our, our resources, then we're not trusting in God. We become doubting, unstable in all our ways, like the sea. And runaway doubt leads to instability in life. It's not uncom- this doubt is not uncommon. We all experience it from, in one way or another. But we must guard ourselves from allowing doubt to foot, take a foothold in our lives. So just summary of how this works, a brief summary. God allows trials then in our lives to test our faith in him. He wants us to look to him in the midst of trials. He wants us to look to him for help in the midst of trials. So that one way, and then one way we look to him then is to recognize, first of all, that we lack wisdom. We don't know what to do. And so we, it should cause us to go straight to God and say, God, grant us wisdom. We can find it only in him. So we respond by prayer and asking him. And by doing so in faith, believing, God will give us wisdom. He's promised to give it to us. We will receive it. And the result of that is when we receive wisdom, it increases our faith even more. We said, oh, man, next time I'm going to ask God even sooner than, than I did this time. But another way that we look to the Lord in the midst of trials is found in verse 9 through 11. And that is that faith boasts in the knowledge of the Lord in trials. That we look to God and we realize the, what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We who are believers in Christ have at our, at our, at our uh, resources all, who, all that Christ is and all that it belongs to Christ. When we read these verses, 
verse 9 through 11, and if, if you take a look at it even now, these verses seem kind of out of place, don't they? We wonder, is James switching to a new subject here? Is he, is he talking about the poor man or the poor man, brother of humble circumstances? He talks about a rich man. He talks about what they should boast in or glory in. It doesn't, there's no mention here particularly of trials in, this, in these three verses. But James is continuing to speak about trials. It is because, and that we understand this because of the context of these verses. Uh, not only in the verses prior, but even if we look to verse 12, James continues to write of perseverance in trials. That in the midst of trials, we, we can rejoice because God's going to give us endurance. He teaches us to endure. And since these verses are surrounded by the verses that speak of trials, we understand then that these three verses, good interpreted well, say that this is in the context of believers in the midst of various trials. So it's even as he talks about a poor man and a rich man, it's a poor man and a rich man in the midst of trials, in the midst of considering it all joy, in the midst of seeking wisdom. That is what these verses describe. How then do these verses also relate to trials? First of all, we're reminded in these verses that trials happen to all people, whether poor or rich. No matter who you are, we all face illness and death. All lose loved ones. All have interpersonal conflicts. All get stuck in traffic on the Bay Area freeways from time to time. You get the picture, right? Secondly, though all face trials, all can find joy in trials. And all can ask God for wisdom in trials. And for this reason, all can boast in the knowledge of the Lord. Because we found joy in the midst of trials, because we've asked of God for wisdom, we can really, we can, we can respond by boasting glorying, rejoicing, feeling good that we know the Lord in the midst of trials, no matter who you are. And James points this out through the contrast of a poor man, the brother of humble circumstances, and a rich man in the midst of trials. So he starts then with verse 9, the poor man. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. The poor believer here is instructed to boast in his high position in the midst of trials. His poverty here is described as humble circumstances. Uh, he, James uses the word humble circumstances because he wants to make a, actually a comparison, a, a contrast. Later on, the, the rich man is going to be experience humiliation. And that's a, almost the identical word here, uh, a different form of this word humble. One is a poor man is a, is a exists in humble circumstances, but the rich man in the midst of trials experiences a humiliation. James wrote to a people that were scattered by war and persecution. Some lived as slaves, and so understandably, these people lived in humble circumstances. They were poor. They experienced poverty, and poverty itself was a trial for many, just as it remains a trial for many today in our world. Imagine, as you just think about, I think very few of us here are... uh, or, or would classify as, as in poverty. But if we could think about those who are poor, just not having enough food, money to buy food or clothing to provide for a home or a family, to not have enough. I remember on one of our winter missions, we met a family in California here who instead of having heat in their home in the dead of winter in the mountains of, of California, they rather took their money to, so they could have food on the table. And I think they even came to our our winter-long VBS because, well, the church had heat on. The poor, is to, the poor often have to work two or three jobs to simply make ends meet. That's just to make ends meet. Yet James says to the poor, the poor man, he says in the midst of trials that he can boast. The poor man can boast. He can rejoice. He can glory. What can a poor man boast or rejoice in glory about? When we look at poor people, maybe we probably we have great examples as we look at the, the, the homeless people living in our green belt here. We say, do we say, oh, man, I envy them. Look at what a great life they're living. We boast. Do, can we say we rejoice in, in what they're experiencing? We don't, right? We, so, I don't think we do. But this James tells the poor that they can boast. Actually, the poor believer, the brother of humble circumstances, 
that they can boast, they can glory. This is a key word in this section, it's this word glory. In the original Greek, it stands as the very first word in this verse. It is also given as a command. The word means to take pride in something, to boast in something. Even as uh, I think the King James, New King James, to rejoice, or King James rejoice. It's to feel good about something that we identify in. So what can the poor man identify in that he would boast in? The scripture says it's not as particularly his poverty, but in what? It's, it's in his high position. What is this high position then that a poor man is to boast in in the midst of trials? That it is this, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, he knows the Lord and therefore is a child of God and an heir of the kingdom of God. The poor believer in Jesus Christ, the poorest believer in Jesus Christ is one who is a child of God and an heir of a kingdom. He is the heir of all that belongs to Christ, in Christ. In fact, James writes of this in James, later in James 2.5. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Those who have very little or nothing more often are rich in their faith. It's because they, have, because they don't have much that they are forced. There's no other you know, way to turn but to turn to God. And as they learn to trust in God as believers, they find that God is faithful. A lot of times for us who have means, who have resources, when we go through trials, we tend to depend upon our own means, our own resources. Oh, man, oh, there's a, oh, a couple thousand dollar huge bill uh, is received. Boy, hmm, I'll just write a check. Yeah, it's a big dent, but I'll just write a check. Oh, man, I don't know how I went to that. Well, hey, I think I know a lawyer friend. I got connections. So I'm going to ask my lawyer friend, hey, how should, how should I deal with this situation? We have a many resources at our hands, and we tend to turn to those. But when you're poor and you cannot afford a lawyer, you don't, you don't um, have wealth at your hands. You turn immediately to God, and thus, therefore, the poor of this world are, are found to be rich in faith. The poor believers in the world are rich in faith. The poor believer can boast that he knows the Lord. Because he knows the Lord in the midst of his trials, he can find joy. He can seek wisdom from the Lord. And all his blessings in Christ far outweigh and outlast all the riches of this world put together. Now I realize for most of us in this room that we are not poor. But we can still, I think, apply this verse in a way to our lives as well. We can, you know, we definitely we can apply the next two verses. But this verse describes those who lack, those who have not in a world of have. And if you feel that way, a lot of times we feel this, oh, I wish I had this, I don't have that, I'm not tall, I'm not strong, I'm not wealthy, I'm not a homeowner, I don't have a car, I don't have good looks, whatever. You know, we all realize that we, we are aware of what we lack in comparison to others. But like the poor man, when we lack, which drive us to go to the one who has all, go to the Lord. But anyways, the poor man can boast because he knows the Lord. That's why even in the midst of trials, he can find joy still. He can seek wisdom in the trials. But the rich man, verse 10 11, is also encouraged to boast. We read here in verse 10 11, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. James here is writing of a rich believer. If you notice, the verb is not, is, it's italicized in the NAS, so it's implied from verse 9. But even the word in the NAS is the rich man. A lot of your, some other translations simply translate as the rich. It literally is just the rich one. The rich who then? Is it the rich man or is it the rich, we, we would take it from verse 9, the rich brother. Just as the rich brother then is to boast or is to glory in his humiliation. When a rich believer faces trials, what ought he to boast in? 
he is to boast in his humiliation in the midst of trials. That he is humbled in the midst of trials. Remember, I talked about just, just a little bit earlier that when we're the rich or those of us that have means, we t- tend to depend upon our means, our resources, our connections in the midst of trials. But when there are some trials that, you know, you can, you know, you can buy your way out, you can work your way through, you can pay off. But we cannot do that with every trial. Therefore, some, and there are some trials like illness and death, no amount of money can ever overcome. And that is a humbling thing for a rich man, for those who have means to experience. But he, the rich believer can boast in his humiliation because when he faces trials that he cannot overcome with his resources, the rich man becomes humble. He learns then to trust in the Lord. He learns, the, most importantly of all, really the emptiness, the eternal emptiness, the, the spiritual emptiness of material possessions. Material possessions are only really good for this material world. The emptiness of the material possessions in his life, that they cannot buy him everything. The eternal va- and furthermore, he comes to realize the eternal value of knowing Christ, that he knows Christ instead. Yes. Riches are to be enjoyed and used for God's glory, but they are temporal and final. You can't take it with you. It cannot do anything good for you in eternity. You can only use it here for good in God's glory. And James reminds the rich of their death in, this, in the remainder of verse 10 through 11, how the rich will fade away. He's like the, these grass that, you know, the rich... I love his description of the rich compared to the poor. The rich are like grass that have flowers, you know. It's like, oh, when you see the field of grass, you don't look at the blade of grass. You look at the pretty flowers. I look at my backyard. This is, there's all sorts of grass growing there down the slope. But I kind of notice the flowers. That's how we kind of notice the rich, right? You say, oh, look, look at the pretty grassy flowers, you know. But they're grass nevertheless. When the sun comes and beats down on the grass, when, and they call it the Shiraco wind in, the, in Israel, when it, this uh, burning kind of heat wind that comes through, it scorches all grass, whether you got flowers or not. It takes you all away. You all die. That's the emphasis. It's, it's Old Testament uh, imagery, in fact. And that is the rich man, in the, even with all his flowers, his possessions. And that's you and me. We who live in probably one of the richer neighborhoods of this rich city and this rich state and this rich nation of our world. We have many material possessions. We're like grass that have flowers. Many people love to come here to, to tour. And they say, wow, it must be wonderful to live in San Francisco. Don't let that fool you. They're simply flowers like grass. You're, we are grassy flowers. Let us be wise before the God humiliates us. And when, but when we face those trials, let us realize that what's important isn't our possessions. Let's not turn there first, but let's turn to the Lord, that we know the Lord. And that's why we can find joy in the midst of trials. That's why we can seek God for wisdom in the trials. Just like the poor. But we boast in our humiliation. You know, we might not like trials, but I think for all of us, we would understand and agree that trials have a way of teaching us to depend upon the Lord. Jeremiah writes in, in his ninth chapter, in verse 23 to 24, these words, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. In the midst of trials, let us turn to the Lord. Let us seek him from, for wisdom. Let us find, consider it all joy when we encounter these trials, knowing that God himself is producing endurance in our lives, and that endurance has a perfect work of completing and maturing us in Christ. And this is all because of the Lord, the one who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. That is, therefore, in our midst of trials, we may wonder, does God love me? Why is God allowing me in this trial? No, God does love you. He's the God who delights in loving kindness. God is so unfair. No, God is the God of justice. No, this is not right. No, God is the God of righteousness. He'll always do that which is right. We turn to the Lord, delight in him. To question, oftentimes we doubt. We question God. I understand that. I've done that. 
And I know you've done that. But when we, no matter where our circumstances lie, whether we are rich, we're poor, whether we are already in humble circumstances or whether we're experiencing the humiliation in the midst of trials, let us boast that we know the Lord. Because in the Lord, we have all that we need for them in the midst of trials. We look to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Let us not continue in our weakness and our sinfulness to look to ourselves in trials. Let us not allow ourselves to be overwhelmed. But remember that trials are designed to test our faith. So when trials come, let us look to the Lord. Let's look to him by seeking wisdom from him. Let's look to him by boasting. And as we do so, we come to realize that we may boast in the knowledge of him. Let's pray to God. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. And I know it's a much to consider and grasp, but I think it's, it's practical truths, Father, that all of us can apply as we walk here. Cause us to be men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, who in the midst of various trials come to realize that we lack and that we would seek you for wisdom. That we can, and as you grant us wisdom, that we would then respond rightly, applying your, your word, your truths in our life according to the situation. And Father, as we trust in you for wisdom and when we receive that wisdom, may we rejoice. May we not be discouraged. May we not continue in doubt or, or question your goodness. But may we boast instead. May we glory even in the midst of trials because we know you. And because we know you. Though we may not have much, we have all we need in Christ. And though we may have all that we could ever want that material possessions provide for us, that we also can realize that it is nothing compared to Christ. That all we need is Christ. And that we would learn to continue to increase our faith in you. Father, you do that work in us. Thank you, Father, for these, this word for us. May you particularly cause your people to apply to their hearts this day in the days to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.